0: You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Black, Live, Black Lives Matter protests have taken place in all 50 states and several countries around the world, sparked by the death of George Floyd, who died in the custody of the Minneapolis police. In Hawaii, there have been protests around the state and a paddle out on Maui. Uh, Akemi Glenn is the executive director and founder of the Palolo Apu. Popolo Project, a Honolulu-based community group that creates space for the African-American community to be part of Hawai'i's multicultural landscape. She talked to the Conversations' Jason Ubai about the group and what the community is feeling right now.
1: We do work that is focused on on helping our local black community specifically to understand the history of people of African descent here in Hawai'i, but also uh, the history of blackness, which is not necessarily the same thing. And um, and understand how some of the current cultural and political um, events play out in that historical context. So our mission is to redefine what it means to be Black in Hawaii and in the world through cultivating radical reconnection to ourselves, our communities, our ancestors, and the land.
2: So with the things going on across the U.S., the protest and continued institutional racism and police brutality against black people across the country. What has been the response uh, from the community here? I know we're physically distanced, but there is a shared community, but uh, can you talk about that?
1: Um, Well, I think like many people, um, not just black people, but our our small community here is experiencing a lot of grief around what we're seeing. Um, Of course, grief and sympathy with the families of the several people who have been killed in the last few weeks. I think many of us also have been really astounded in the midst of a pandemic. Maybe we were a little bit naive in thinking that the usual experience of police brutality and extrajudicial killing of black people might have stopped during a nationwide pandemic, worldwide pandemic. Um, I think that's part of what we're seeing in the reactions that people are having to this moment. Um, The whole world had to stop for a moment, and we had you know, started conversations about what the world might be like, what new things might come forward. And I think for many of us, it was just a sad reminder that there are lots of things that have not changed. I think that is one of the things that's igniting a lot of the uprisings that we're seeing in cities across the U.S. So even though there are folks here in Hawaii who are very far away from the property destruction, the protests, and and the violence that Black people are having directed at them um, right now at the hands of police as they protest and demonstrate. Even though we're removed from that physically, many of us, of course, have family there. And even if we don't have family there, um, we understand that we are connected to those people and we're also the descendants and inheritors of a history of violence against Black people over many centuries. In addition to watching the stuff that's happening in North America over the last week, we're also kind of grappling with the latent and often unrecognized anti-blackness that's part of Hawaii culture. And um, you know, I'd be remiss to talk about what's happening in North America without also contextualizing threats that have been made against black people even in the last week here in Hawaii, Fallout out after the um, videos and images of Memorial Day parties on the North Shore were being circulated. Um, We've even, as people here have been organizing vigils and demonstrations and socially distanced gatherings, there have also been calls for non-Black locals to come and keep an eye on us to make sure that we don't become violent. So even though we live here and we're part of this community, there's still this suspicion of criminality that's associated with any kind of Black people and Black gatherings. So I think we're feeling a lot of different things as I talk to folks in the community, um, many of us are feeling very tired. I know a lot of people on social media have just been expressing that. They just feel tired. But I think what that that tiredness is about is that the exhaustion that comes with constantly having to explain yourself and your humanity. And for many black locals, having to explain that we live here and that we are part of this community. And, you know, of course, we're feeling the, the eha and the heaviness of what's happening in North America very much. But we also love Hawaii. And, um, you know, we'll behave accordingly as we're grieving.
2: Well, it's sad to hear that, you know, during this time of pain that there's still a lot of discrimination and stereotyping. But Mm -hmm. can you uh, tell me about some of the things that rallies and things that are uh, happening around town?
1: On Sunday, we did, with a number of other black community organizations, host a vigil at Magic Island in Almoana Beach Park. Um, It was attended by around 200 people, a sunset vigil, candle lighting to honor the the people People who have been murdered in the last several weeks by the police and by vigilantes. And um, I think there will be more of that. Our priority right now at the Popolo Project is to check in on our local black community and make sure that they feel safe. There are a lot of people, um, for the reasons that I explained a second ago, who are not really sure about gathering in public um, because we are visible And because there have been statements made by people who are going to want to make sure that we, you know, stay in line, quote, unquote, Um, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't find out about these events that are happening or join them if they feel so moved. Um, But right now, I I don't have a lot of details on some of the the events that have been um, made available for the public. At the Propola Project, we've also um, held some black spaces where we've had a a Zoom call last uh, Saturday where we invited our community just to kind of check in with each other and talk about what they need and where they'd like us to go as an organization advocating for them. So um, there will be more of those kinds of spaces available too for our community also to gather and process together because the reality is we're a very small population. Um, we're around, depending on who you ask and how people identify, between 25 to 4% of the population of the entire state. And so the reality is for many of us, we live and work and in families where, we might not have other black people around us um, or people who don't have the same kind of perspective on seeing um, violence against black people. So we will continue to hold space for our community to be able to check in and support each other in the next
2: few weeks. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of people who think that we're a cultural melting pot here, but mm-hmm. it sounds like, you know, there's certainly discrimination. But what can people do to, you know, educate themselves and, you know, not fall back on these stereotypes
1: you know a lot of the work that we do at the popola Project is really trying to provide our community with a larger context. Um, Hawaii is a unique place. We absolutely feel that and experience it. And it's not like North America in a lot of ways. But in some ways, ideas about race and who belongs where have come here, um, along with American presence in Hawaii. And uh, you know some of the work that we do is providing our community with education about the history of Hawaii. So um, in just a couple of weeks, June 19th is a holiday that's called Juneteenth. And it commemorates the day, June 19th, 1865, when enslaved people in Texas found out that the Civil War was over. And that they were free. And they were emancipated. And lots of Black communities in the U.S. celebrate Juneteenth with um, barbecues and parties and dancing. And it's become more popular in recent years as people have started to understand the history. One of the things that happened on that day... 1865 was that people immediately went looking for their family members. They started businesses. They started really imagining what their lives would be like and really took full advantage of their freedom. They really were already humans, but had the opportunity to exercise all of the rights of being a human in that moment. And it's important that here in the Pacific that we also contextualize that moment. So for a lot of people in the U.S. and North America, the end of the Civil War is the end of slavery, but the the real history... Um, There's a wonderful book called The White Pacific by Gerald Horn that outlines this. The real history was that confederates and slaveholders actually pivoted to the Pacific, and the history of the overthrow of Hawai'i's kingdom and sovereign government is actually related to those folks taking their white supremacist ideals and moving them to the Pacific. And in the 1860s, during the American Civil War and shortly thereafter, there was actually a slave trade that that flourished here and that kidnapped people, um, mostly who were from Melanesia in the western Pacific but also some Polynesians and transported them to Peru and to Australia where they had taken their sugarcane plantations and their cotton plantations they they still wanted to preserve their business interests by enslaving other people So even for us as black people who are connected to a particular U.S. history, and and I I would also note that there are many of us in Hawaii who are not just from the U.S., but black from around the world, from Africa, from the Caribbean, from South America as well. Um, It's important for us to be able to to contextualize what has happened in Hawaii in a global way. And I would just encourage folks to seek out resources to do that. Our website, thepopoloproject.org, has a, a resource that we call the Popolo Syllabus, that has lots of educational resources for for teachers and educators and parents and others who are interested in the particular history of black people and blackness the idea of blackness here in the pacific and especially how it applies to native pacific islanders so i would encourage folks to check that out we also the organization offers on a rolling basis we offer a, a course that we call understanding race and belonging in hawaii and it's a five-week series um, of discussions and readings and, and historical information and contemporary facts of Hawaii, thinking about how um, the tremendous wealth inequality here, the, um, the disproportionate incarceration of Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders, is actually related to the history of race and the way that Black people and Indigenous people in North America have been treated by the U.S. So um, I found in leading some of those discussions that it's been really helpful for our local community to have a new vocabulary to talk about what's happening here in Hawai'i. Because for a long time we've had, um, I would say, a myth of multiculturalism. Um, there's a lot of beautiful intercultural history in Hawai'i. So we, we won't deny that at all. There's a, a really beautiful and, and just amazingly rich history of people connecting as humans and building a new culture that we call local and also of course the the indigenous culture of kanaka hawaii is really really important at the same time we need ways to talk about what's happening on the ground we need ways to contextualize things like the murder of starsky willie the teenager who was shot in Camphor housing in november and the way that our local news media covered that story They put up pictures of Starsky where he's wearing a hoodie, very, very similar to depictions of Trayvon Martin after he was killed by a neighbor around the same age. So um, even though we're not saying that everything is exactly the same, I think that there are really important instructive opportunities for us to contextualize what's happening on the ground in Hawaii in a global context of race.
2: a lot to learn and just to reflect on, to have that awareness uh, for a lot of folks. Is there anything else uh, that uh, you wanna underscore?
1: I think there's a really wonderful impulse in Hawaii to stand up in solidarity with um, communities of color on the continent. And um, I think that that's really beautiful that people are, are feeling the humanity of, of our black community in North America. Um, but I would also remind them that there are black people here as well, and that there's an opportunity to connect with us and learn about our experiences here in Hawaii as well, um, and as folks are, are planning protests or rallies or solidarity actions, I would really encourage them to check in with other Black organizations. Um, we have, you know, many churches and fraternities and sororities, and NAACP chapter, um, museum of, of African history in Hawaii, as well as the Kapolei project. And I would really encourage folks to. Um, While they're expressing solidarity with people in North America, don't forget that we're here and that we have experiences and and ideas and desires and needs that are also important.
0: That was Akemi Glenn, head of the Popolo Project, talking about this time of unrest. There is a protest scheduled for Saturday at noon at Alamoana Beach Park here in Honolulu. And it's time now to take a look across the globe. Cases of COVID-19 accelerate in Brazil, India, and Mexico, as England makes the wearing of face coverings mandatory on all public transportation. Here's the BBC with the latest.
3: This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday the 4th of June. I'm Alex Ritson. Cases of Covid-19 accelerate in India, Brazil and Mexico. The wearing of face coverings will be compulsory on public transport in England and France will transform vast quantities of wine into hand sanitizer. Global cases of COVID-19 are accelerating quickly in India, Brazil and Mexico, with Iran facing a potential second wave. Iranian officials are urging people to respect social distancing at work, on transport and in mosques. Our global health correspondent Naomi Grimley has been looking at the data.
4: Iran's graph of daily cases now resembles a double peak, having relaxed its restrictions in mid-April. Today, it recorded 3,547 new infections. That's the highest figure since February, when the virus first took hold. The World Health Organization says it's concerned about the accelerating epidemics in the Americas. Both Brazil and Mexico have just recorded their largest daily numbers for deaths so far. In Brazil, the total number of infections is soon set to pass 600,000. In India, they fear the peak is still to come. Cases are spiralling in rural areas where weak healthcare and malnutrition are added complications. The official number of infections stands at 218,000. That's a fraction of the USA's official total. But a lack of testing capacity means the true number will be much bigger.
3: The British government has said face coverings will be compulsory on public transport in England to help prevent the spread of coronavirus. Similar steps are being considered in Scotland. The Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, made the announcement at the daily Downing Street briefing. Maintaining social distancing, washing your hands, remain the most critical things to do. We also know on public transport, keeping two metres apart is not always possible, so when more people return to the network from the 15th of June onwards... They will be required to wear face coverings on transport network. To Uganda now, where, according to official figures, none of the 40 million population has died from COVID-19. Only a few hundred people have been infected so far. That success in stemming the spread of the virus has allowed Uganda to push ahead with lifting its lockdown. Public transport has now begun again across the country, as Catherine Biruhanga in Kampala now reports.
4: Uganda has had one of the most strict lockdowns in the region. So people couldn't leave their homes using public transport, even their own private vehicles. They couldn't earn a living. So this left a lot of people in the informal sector unable to earn an income. Many can't still earn an income right now. So you've had a lot of people who are using this opportunity, the resumption of public transport, to be able to leave the city, go to the villages where they might be able to survive better. But unfortunately when they got to the bus terminals this morning they found that there were fewer vehicles. Many of them were unable to get onto buses or minibus taxis.
3: Japan is considering simplifying the format of the postponed Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics due to the impact of the pandemic. Tokyo's governor said possible changes were already being discussed. According to media reports, the measures could include mandatory coronavirus testing, reducing the number of spectators, and scaling back the opening and closing ceremonies. The Japanese Olympics minister, Seiko Hashimoto, said it was extremely important to host a safe and secure Games. Oh, I see it the past- From the point of view of the athletes, they can be very worried about the Tokyo Games.
0: I think we have to consider what should be done, including testing for COVID-19,
4: to ensure security and safety.
3: A survey suggests the Covid-19 crisis has been affecting many people's sleep. Scientists at a university in London say it could reflect how unsettling and stressful the pandemic has been. Here's Daniela Ralph.
4: Overall, 62% of people said the lockdown had disturbed their sleep, particularly amongst those who described themselves as certain or very likely to face financial difficulties. Slightly more women reported disrupted sleep patterns than men, And 39% of those questioned said they'd had vivid dreams since lockdown started. Professor Bobby Duffy from King's College, who led the research, said it showed how the crisis was affecting people very differently, including in the fundamental aspects of life, such as sleep.
3: Vast quantities of unsold French wine are to be used to make hand-sanitising fluid and bioethanol after a collapse in sales and exports due to the pandemic. The head of the wine section of a national farming agency said distillers will be able to collect the wine from Friday. The distilled alcohol will be destined for the pharmaceutical and cosmetic industries, not for making spirits. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at Honolulumuseum.org. When you give to Hawaii Public Radio, you can do so knowing that your contribution will be
5: used wisely. That's because we've been awarded a four star rating from Charity Navigator, America's largest independent evaluator of nonprofits. And we've earned that rating eight years in a row. It tells you that your donation goes towards the things that matter most. For more about Charity Navigator or to become a member, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's time now for your backyard quiz. (laughs) keanu reeves you may know him from such blockbuster movies as bill and ted's excellent adventure the matrix and john wick But did you know Keanu, whose ancestry includes native Hawaiian, English, Chinese, Irish, and Portuguese, was also in a band? Dogstar formed in 1991 when Reeves met fellow actor Robert Mailhouse at a grocery store. Mailhouse was wearing a hockey sweater at the time, and the two bonded. They started jamming together, Mailhouse on drums, Reeves on bass, and Greg Miller on guitars and vocals. They started writing songs and decided to go on tour. After several inappropriate names, they landed on Dog Store after Mailhouse found the name in a Henry Miller novel. Uh, Brett Dombrose joined the band in 1994 as an additional guitarist and vocalist, but took over the lead vocals when Greg Miller left. Prior to a show they had here in Honolulu in 1998, John Berger of the Honolulu Star Bulletin said, The band's sound evolved in an amalgam of classic punk, new wave rock, and mid 60s English invasion guitar rock without cloning any of those sounds. Our question today is what concert venue did Dogstar perform in 1998? Call 941 3689 or 877 941 3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com.
0: This week, Hawaii Green Growth released results of a survey about attitudes in this time of disruption and what we need to consider our economic and er environmental futures in a post-COVID world. Recently, the state appointed former Hawaiian Electric CEO Alan Oshima as Hawaii's economic navigator to help oversee our community's recovery. We talked to Hawaii's Green Growth Celeste Connors about how we as a community need to move forward to manage risk and encourage innovation during this time
6: it's a really difficult time for our community in so many ways you know with the disruption the tourism and supply chains and we need to acknowledge that there's some real immediate pain um, with the loss of livelihoods, and you know within the community and trying to figure out the way forward i think it does present an opportunity for us to look at ways what you can become more resilient and sustainable covid is inherently about disruption and I think that Hawaii is going to be looking at future disruptions. And so how we emerge from this current crisis and our ability to, I think, manage risk going forward is really going to be key.
0: This week we saw the city announce that they are re-looking at so many things, including what's happening at Hanama Bay uh, and how that place has been shut down and and what's happening there with uh, the marine preserve and kind of letting people know that maybe we need to do more to limit the numbers of people that go down there and maybe raise the prices but it it's that kind of thing to help manage tourism as we go forward
6: so tourism is is a key component of our economy and there is a lot of discussion about how we need Further diversification and and Hawaii green growth is looking at that. Um, But, you know, what's exciting is this concept of regenerative tourism that is emerging. And really, I don't think anyone in Hawaii fully thought that the way we were going was working even prior to COVID. In fact, I was really delighted to see the Hawaii Tourism Authority had actually rolled out their new five-year strategy in January prior to COVID, where it already recognized that the current trajectory was not sustainable with the number of visitors. And they had actually laid out and mapped out a plan for how you could have um, a better experience between the visitor and the community and a deeper connection and really enhancing the tourist experience. And that is connected to our ability to steward our natural resources, uh, which is really largely the reason why we have so many visitors to our island. So I think the thing is, we were actually already ahead of the curve, including Hawaii Tourism Authority, and recognizing the way we were approaching tourism was not working. The curve just tightened. And so I think it's now an opportunity for it to implement that strategy. The Aloha Plus Challenge is a key component of that strategy, which really looks at breaking down these false dichotomies between economic prosperity and health and culture and to recognize that the solution that will emerge needs to actually incorporate all of these different components.
0: And as we look to diversify, people are looking at green energy, you know, those types of things, just to make sure we're not so vulnerable in the future.
6: Absolutely. I think what we've, you know, discussed with many of our business leaders and our community is that actually COVID has forced us to, force us into a more sustainable way of, of being, whether that is looking at more remote working, and then the need to improve our connectivity to clean energy and resilience. And I think this is an area where we're doing quite well. You know, we have our 2030 70% clean energy goal, which is part of the Aloha Plus Challenge, but we have, as you're aware, that even more ambitious goal of 100% clean energy by 2045. And so this has renewed interest in renewable energy and energy efficiency, and we're delighted to see that moving forward. And yet, in order for us to really achieve that, it's going to require community engagement. And so this all really comes full circle to recognizing that to emerge more resilient, more sustainable, more equitable, we're going to have to engage the community in these discussions going forward.
0: And that's the word, resilient, right? You've got to be resilient, whether it's COVID or uh uh, rising sea levels, sea temperatures, that kind of thing?
6: Absolutely. You know, particularly as an island economy, and with hurricane season approaching, resiliency is key. It's our ability to bounce back, and even the term pre is one that I prefer. How do we invest forward into ensuring that we have um, less disruption? Um, and so this is one of the things that I'm very excited about, an initiative we launched recently with a group called the Global Island Partnership is called the Local 2030 Islands Network. And really what it is is a hui of islands around the world that recognize we face common challenges, and yet islands can really be at the forefront in charting those solutions. And this comes really back to, particularly in Hawaii, how sustainability and our approach with Hawaii Green Growth is based on a 1,000 years of of knowledge um, and wisdom And looking at the island economy from ridge to reef that many are referring to now as a circular economy as a solution that can emerge and increase resilience. So whether you're the Cook Islands or the Canary Islands or Kauai, we share these challenges. We're more vulnerable to external disruptions. Again, it makes us think about how we need to source our food locally to the degree we can to invest in sustainable agriculture where we can, uh, and to look at supply chain disruption as something that we'll be facing in the future. And I think this is where um, the innovation comes in and recognizing that investing in programs that are working, that have been working, and as and when public resources, philanthropic and private resources come available, how we can actually quickly accelerate those programs. So something we did, Catherine, which is really exciting, is Hawaii Green Growth launched a survey and our network partners said, look, we've been working away at sustainability for quite a while. We know where the opportunities are to put people into jobs, get their livelihoods back on track. And so we put out a survey with many of our partners, and we received over 350 partner responses across six sectors statewide. And we identified over 200 green growth projects, including 150 education and job training opportunities and diverse policy priorities. And so if I were to think about how that would break down to your point, local food systems and agriculture, we received over, you know, 45% of the responses were around that sector, as well as sustainable tourism. And so I think what we're seeing is how do we, Hawaii Green Growth, focus on action in the near term to look at those projects as off-the-shelf projects that can be funded. So whether it's a farm-to-school program that with a little bit more support and resources could employ more folks immediately, we're also seeing in some cases it's not even really the supplier-demand challenges we have with agriculture. It's the connections and the communications between that. So it's a very holistic thing that we need to look at when we're looking at some of the challenges we're facing as a result
0: of COVID. I don't know how involved you are with you know Alan Oshima's group I know he's cast a a wide net because that's what we need we need we need innovation we need fresh ideas and a fresh way of looking at things.
6: Yeah absolutely and and we're really uh, delighted with what Alan is doing um, how he's shaped this uh, from a stabilization and recovery and resilience trajectory his commitment to a more resilient future for Hawaii And yet I think that we're not going to see a pivot at any particular point in time from when we're in stabilization to now when we're in uh, recovery or resilience. And so I think that's where we're working with Allen and other partners. Hawaii Green Growth, you know, actually, contrary to what some folks might think, because of the name, we're not an environmental initiative, but we actually, our origin story comes from the last financial crisis in 2008, Um, when leaders came together and said, we need to get on a green growth pathway. And this was then further adopted during the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation meeting that President Obama hosted in Honolulu, green growth. And that's what actually prompted a group of community leaders to get together to launch Hawaii Green Growth. So we've essentially been working on an integrated economic recovery strategy for Hawaii for nearly a decade. And so this puts us in a good position to engage our partners broadly from across community, bringing those ideas together. And the Aloha Plus Challenge framework, which are our six statewide sustainability goals, already sort of capture that diversity of whether we're looking at natural resource management or smart sustainable communities, equity, social economic culture is at the core of our sustainability framework. And this actually rolls up to the global sustainable development goals. So what we're doing during this particular moment in time is we're convening our stakeholders through our different working groups, a next-gen working group, policy and ledge working group, a measures working group, because in addition to the convening, we're also tracking our progress on our statewide sustainability goals on an open dashboard, which is on the state.gov website. So we're really holding ourselves accountable to what we're doing and at the same time driving action on these key areas. And, and again, have a look at the survey. I think I'd really want to encourage folks to look at that, because while we've pulled together the information, and mm-hmm. it's really extraordinary to see the input that we have from across sectors, we really want to bring that to the attention of, you know, funders, whether it's public, as I said, private or philanthropic, because there are job opportunities out there. Our partners mm-hmm. do have programs that can be scaled, and uh, we can get people back to work. At the request of our partners, uh, we have kept the survey open. But we have over 350 uh, responses and jobs mm-hmm. and investment opportunities that are live and available on the dashboard, um, so dashboard.hawaii.gov, the Aloha Plus Challenge, where you can go and you can click on the survey results, and oh, we're I keeping see. it open for a while okay, so that people can really put in as much information as they can about the number of jobs, the resources needed. We actually put all the results on the dashboard. If you look at that, you can click on different maps to show where the different uh, locations are. For example, you can look at the different analysis of what areas they are. And actually, most importantly, you can get the list directly of projects.
0: That was Celeste Connors, executive director of Hawaii Green Growth, talking about a COVID recovery survey just released this week. For links, check out our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our reality check with Honolulu Civil Beat looks at part of a plan issued by school superintendent Christina Kishimoto about the upcoming school year. Reporter Suvon Lee joins us to talk about a subject that affects thousands of families across the state. Good morning, Suvon.
5: Hi, Catherine.
0: So, yeah, uh, you know, it, it is is—it's so stressful. You know, we've just gone through this distance learning thing, and I know uh, the DOE is looking at, uh, you know, the summer Programs to tweak things as we look forward to the fall. But uh, tell us, so
5: what she said about the plan? Yeah, sure. So the superintendent had a conference call with parents on Monday. Um, this was a call that was geared towards parents of uh, DOE public school students, and it was really almost in passing in which he made a remark towards the end of the call, um, in which a parent raised a question about what parents who are um, you know, teachers, but also providing full-time childcare at home are supposed to do if school doors are kept closed in the fall. And in response to that question, the superintendent said that she would like to see elementary schools provide in-person learning come come August when the next school year starts. And so it's not necessarily a plan from the DOE per se, but it was an expression or an intent um, by the superintendent. But What's been frustrating to some and many groups out there is that there is real no clear guidance yet from the DOE on what exactly those school models will look like come next school year. There's been statements here and there. There's been sort of passing remarks by the superintendent, but there hasn't been any official guidelines yet issued. Now, the DOE is saying they're collecting surveys from parents right now, they're seeing how Summer school is going in which some in person instruction is taking place across select campuses. So they're saying that they're using this information currently to sort of inform what their plans will be moving forward. But if you ask groups like the Teachers Union, the HSTA, they want clearer guidance now because, as we know, the next school year will be here before we know it.
0: Yes, and I know the unions have the consultant confer you know, issue, uh, and, uh, you know, it does seem like things are coming out piecemeal, and, and they do want to report. They want they want to know uh, what the new school year is going to look like.
5: Yes, and, and as we know, Catherine, the, the teachers union, um, you know, collectively bargains on behalf of, you know, 13,000 teachers around the state, and so they need to make sure that, you um, Certain rights are being um, honored, that um, certain new standards are being bargained for. We're all in this sort of new reality. And when teachers are expected to either return to the classroom, if you're in in the elementary school level, or if you're expected to continue distance learning for part of the week next school year, what are those expectations and standards? Uh, What do those look like for you? So the HSTA needs to, as they put it on their website, uh, negotiate with the DOE to be um, explicit about those standards and expectations so they can protect the the rights and, uh, and the standing of these teachers who, I guess right now, are sort of in limbo as far as what things will look like as far as the school model goes. Well, I can see why the
0: teachers would want to know, you know, what uh, the the year's going to bring. I was talking to a principal not too long ago, and he had mentioned that, you know, they were doing things like, uh, uh, you know, telling teachers, uh, you know, this was at a private school, but, uh, you know, you aren't going to be eating in the cafeteria. Your kids are going to eat their lunch in the classroom, you know, to minimize contact. Sure,
5: sure. Yeah, and and private schools, public schools alike, I think there is, you know general guidance out there modeled from the CDC and which has been adapted by you know places like the Hawaii Department of Health as far as general guidelines the DOE has issued um, a very general set of guidelines and posted on our website on Monday um, detailing what safety protocols can be taken when students return if they return to schools and that includes you know desk space three feet or six feet apart require um, requiring wearing masks in certain settings, requiring lunches be eaten in classrooms or outdoor spaces rather than the cafeteria, no field trips. But these are very general guidelines, um, and I think they run pretty universal to many school districts around the country. Um, but what struck me in this one-page blueprint that the DOE posted was sort of the, the limited information when it even comes to school buses. How will social distancing be maintained on school buses? More than 30,000 DOE kids use buses to get to school, Um, more than half of those on the neighbor islands. So if they're relying on school buses to even get to the school doors, how is the DOE going to ensure that they can ride these buses safely? So I'm
0: sure they're going to have to really start uh, uh, stepping things up. In in the weeks to come, as as you know, the planning goes forward. But thanks so much for your story, Suvon. Sure thing. Thanks a lot. That was Suvon Lee with today's reality check. To read her full story, visit civilbeat.org.
6: Tune in to HBR1 Saturday night for Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note, virtually live. Performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. This week is Tavana, a one-man band who uses his feet to lay down a variety of grooves to accompany his soulful, island-inspired rock and blues. Plus, host Marco Olivari chats with Tavana backstage. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR one or listen on your smart speaker.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii. Providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii. F-I-C-O-H dot com.
0: For today's Backyard Quiz, we look at actor and internet darling Keanu Reeves. Throughout his career, he's played many roles. Time-traveling high school student, savior of an apocalyptic world ruled by artificial intelligence, an FBI agent slash surfer. Most recently, he's been a hitman out to avenge his dog and the voice of a Canadian daredevil. Whoa. But during the 90s, he actually played bass in a rock band called Dogstar. Reeves started the uh, band with drummer Robert Mailhouse, an actor whose credits include Days of Our Lives, along with vocalist Brett Domros, and the band enjoyed some success and attracted media attention because of its Hollywood star. The group opened for David Bowie, Bon Jovi on tours, and played at music festivals in Belgium and Glastonbury. After touring Japan in 1998, the group made a stop in Honolulu before heading back to California. The one-night stand took place at the now shuttered World Cafe, that was the answer we were looking for, but nobody got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to Talkback at Hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, it's been about a year since an Italian band from Rome released an album called Waikiki Leaks, Swing Luau. We were intrigued since we were told only the band leader Flavio speaks English and none of the members had ever been to the islands. They learned the songs uh, sing, uh, listening to a classic radio show, Territorial Airways, with Harry B. Sorio Jr. So today we introduce you to Flavio Paschetto, singing a classic with his lead singer and girlfriend, Miss Faro. Take a listen to a charming rendition of Andy Cummings' Waikiki. You just may hear the slightest Italian accent. Memories
7: out of the past Memories that always will last. Of a place beside the the sea
5: Sea. at night when the shadows are falling, I hear the rolling surf.
3: To me,
4: why Kiki. Kiki. this for you that
5: my heart is yearning?
0: And we caught up with Flavio earlier this year, shortly after he landed in Texas. We wanted to know what the story was behind the title of the album, Waikiki Leaks. But just as the virus was tightening its hold on Italy, Flavio decided it was best to uh, leave the U.S. to return home to ride out the crisis with his family and friends. Here's Flavio.
7: At the beginning, it was a... Just a whirlpool, because when I was recording the the album and when it was put together the the musician uh, the WikiLeaks thing was on the television so it was like a sound that came in my mind and so I blended the the, the Waikiki beach and Waikiki uh, the Waikiki music <laughs> with the WikiLeaks. Then I realized that was much more, was more than a word poon because listen to the territory of Airways shows of Harry Soria Jr. In some ways was Harry was leaking out all the mystery of, the, of, of, of Hawaiian music, no? So in, in that time I was um, I was discovering the the music I was studying the the guitar. So to me, it's like something to get in touch with something was was mysterious. It was a secret because we don't, we don't, have, uh, we don't listen to much of white music, no? So it was very new for me. And it was a like, kind of a, kind of magic, a kind of secret, you know? So I started studying still guitar and uh, I started listening to Territorial Airways radio and uh, all the famous Abayam player and tried to figure out the way, how they play, the style of the steel guitar, and uh, that was the beginning of Waikiki um, Leaks and my interest about Hawaiian music. How did you get to know Harry Bisorio? I, I found on internet the, his great website, you know, with all, the, all, the, all this, the radio shows. This is the first time I, I get Harry Bisorio. Uh, then later, uh, I discovered <laughs> we, we had a friend who lives in Rome, is a, she is a an hula teacher, and she knows very well Harry because um, she studied with uh, Harry's wife, Kilohana. I no? see. So that's how yeah. you folks got together. Yes, right. And and this woman, her name is Gail Roberts, teach, teaches hula, hula, teach hula in uh, Rome. So tell us about your
0: band, because I understand that uh, none of your band members have ever been to Hawaii. No, never. Me too. (laughs) I've never been there. Well, hopefully you get here someday.
7: Yeah, absolutely, yes.
0: (laughs) And so, was it strange for them to be recording this kind of music, not ever, you know, seeing the islands and experiencing the culture?
7: In some ways, yes, but not so much because um, we usually play swing music. um, I usually play traditional jazz music, which is blended with the Hawaiian culture, No in the Hapaoli style, Hapaoli style, the music from, but in 20s, 30s, 40s, which was blended a lot with the traditional jazz swing music from the US. So that kind of um, similarity for us was was a good start to do ourselves in the Hawaii music. So when okay? when
0: somebody hires you to play, do they hire you to play uh hawaiian swing music or you or they hire you to play jazz and then you kind of sneak in some of these numbers
7: now in rome they hire me to play hawaiian music because they knew they know that i have a band a hawaiian swing band and i uh i play that style so they look they look me for play hawaiian music but often i go to play with my, especially with my with my uh, girlfriend with francesca fire with the singer of the waga we're going to play also swing music, traditional jazz music. So we play both. What is the
0: response like when you break out with this music?
7: Oh, there's interest. There's interest, yeah, because it's something that is new. And then it's is, it is something that is very close to the swing music. And actually in Rome, we have a, a very good scene of, of swing music, traditional jazz music, especially for for dancers, No, you know, the Lindy Hop dancers dance school. So for them, it's it's funny because they can dance the Lindy Hop over music that is not traditional jazz, but it it looks like and sounds uh, exotic, no? Do you have a favorite song? Oh, so many. (laughs) So many, really. Um, I think my favorite music uh, could be Alfred Apaca and Village Terminators and Paul Almeida. And this great band with Benny Sax on vibraphone. I do love your rendition of Waikiki. Waikiki, yeah, Waikiki is a great classic, and of course, yeah. And there's another that we are we we love uh, so much. It, the, the song is called Waikiki on a rainy night, and was recorded by Al well, back in the 50s. And, uh, and it's a song that I learned from a Harry B radio show, and uh, we recorded again. And probably no one recorded since, since the 1950s. For me, it's a very special song. And and I think it's the same for Harry B. So it's the kind of song that we link each other together, you know. And uh, that song I love very much.
0: What was it like when you finally got to meet
7: Harry B. Soria? Harry was at the release party of the White E-Leaks album in Rome at the beginning of... Um, 2019. Very fitting that he was able to make it. Yeah, yeah, very nice. It was an honor for for us. Yeah, kind of a dream. Yeah, you know, I was a very big fan of Eddie, and when I met him, it was like uh, wow, (laughs) one of the best days days of my
0: life. We've been talking to Flavio Paschetto, band leader of a group from Italy, who recently released a CD, Waikiki Leaks, Swing Luau. And that's it for today up tomorrow. Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend for an Aloha Friday show devoted to culture and the arts. Give us some feedback. Got some questions about anything or something you've heard on the show, call our Talk Back line. Email us at talkback at hoipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>